Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. So today we're going to be looking at the role of woodlands, uh, that the, the role they have to play in protecting water quality. And to discuss this, I'm joined by Kevin Collins, Forestry Inspector with the Department of Agriculture. Kevin, you're very welcome to our webinar this morning. Kevin, your uh, role in the forestry uh, inspectorate, you're, you're based in the environment section, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct, Mark. And, and it's a, a wide-ranging job, a wide-ranging brief. Um, it covers things like developing, working on the native woodland scheme and the neighborhood scheme to working on initiatives around and harrier and freshwater pearl mussel, drafting up requirements for you know environmental um, uh, protection during afforestation and felling, um, and a lot of work with a colleague of mine called Ken Book on water issues and working with the water community, um, particularly around the Water Framework Directive, and um, to try and you know figure out ways to solve issues that are there with old forests in particular, but also to look at ways in which woodlands and forests can be used to protect water. So it's a kind of a very varied wide-ranging brief and but it's it's good it's very interesting yeah great well look if you could uh share your screen with us so kevin and we'll get on to the presentation so the format for those of you who aren't familiar with the format this morning uh, kevin will give a a short presentation about 25 minutes and uh, we'll take questions afterwards and we'll endeavor to get through as many of your questions uh, at the end of the presentation so Really looking forward to your presentation, Kevin. So uh, I'll hand over to you. Delighted to be here. Delighted to be able to talk about woodlands for water um, and ways in, in which we can use forests to protect and enhance water quality. Um, it's particularly refreshing now to talk about this um, just because there are lots of initiatives going on in the area of water um, through the, the second cycle of the Water Framework Directive and also as you enter, enter, enter into the third cycle of the Water Framework Directive. Um, so forests have an awful lot to offer in terms of, of, of ways in which we can protect and enhance water. And that's what I'd like to look at today. My colleague Ken Book was also to be present to present this. Um, unfortunately, he couldn't be here, so, but he's very much part of, of this presentation also. So, if I could just very briefly, one or two words about the Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine in terms of forestry. Um, I won't say any more except to say that we have two key roles. One is in terms of regulation. Um, in order to afforest or to fell trees or to develop a forest road or even to, to apply area fertilization, there's a requirement for a license from the Forest Service, from the Minister of, of, of um, Agriculture, Food and the Marine. And within that, therefore, we have to look at each application that comes in from the perspective of silvicultural requirements, um, but also environmental requirements. And within that, things like the Habits Directive and the Water Framework Directive and the EIA Directive very much come into focus. So that's one role that we have is, is in terms of, of um, the regulation of forestry activity. And we cover the private sector and, the, and, and quilture. But the other side of, of, of what we do is very much along the lines of promoting sustainable forest management via funding that we offer for different forestry activities. Um, for example, the afforestation scheme is there, offering 12 different options uh, for, for, for developing types of, of different types of forests. We have funding for forest roads, for attending and thinning, for CCF, continuous cover forestry. Also native woodland conservation, along with a native woodland establishment element within the afforestation scheme itself. The neighborhood scheme to develop public amenities and uh, woodland amenities close to where people live. 
and also just released there last week this new scheme for woodland creation on public lands and this effectively is funding public bodies developing native woodland for ecosystem services on public land so it's a new scheme that that has just rolled out and you know the policy is there but very much about the right tree in the right place and um, trying to maximize benefits that forestry can bring bring in terms of um, economics in terms of social issues and in terms of the environment so it's all about very much kind of looking to see what the right tree is in the right place and in that forestry has grown over um, you know rapidly over the last century we now have around 11 percent of the land area under forest cover obviously it's forming a massive carbon sink and it generates lots of economic activity um, now almost half of our forests are under private ownership so that's a, a big shift in ownership primarily due to planting by farmers and other uh, private landowners over the last um, two decades or so and we're just scraping the the 30 percent broadleaf cover so we're almost at the point where where broadleaf cover is 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 30 percent so while it's a vibrant um industry from the point of view of producing a, a product that generates employment and, and, and um, income we also have a very strong focus on ecosystem services and these so you know in terms of employment everything from the nursery sector through to the the you know realizing the timber from the forest right through to haulage and sawmills processing what have you so all the way through the stream there are opportunities for employment and, and economic activity but also ecosystem services these very important co-benefits are very much part of our, our forest policy Carbon, obviously carbon capture being, being a massive part of that, um, alternative sources of energy, um, biodiversity, you know, how do we use forests and woodlands to, to enhance biodiversity, for example, on, at the farm level, but also at the wider landscape level. You know, speaking of landscape, the role of forests in terms of enhancing landscapes. Um, and also amenity recreation is a massive part now in terms of, you know, realizing the importance of having good quality woodland amenities where people live to visit so that you know, all the benefits in terms of the physical well-being, mental well-being, opportunities for education, you know, celebration of local heritage, all these issues come to the fore. So they're all part of the mix. But also um, very important is water and the idea that you know, we have to be very careful under the Water Framework Directive and the Habits Directive in terms of how we regulate forestry activity to make sure that it doesn't impact negatively on, on water quality, but also to look at ways in which we can use forests proactively to deliver benefits in terms of the protection of water. And that's very much what I'm focusing on here today. So just to dive a little bit into the 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 um, the river basin management plan for Ireland. Uh, the current one which we're in, which is the second cycle, it runs from 2018 to 2021. And there was a massive characterization process taken that took place before um, to identify basically the, the types of risks that, that our, our various water bodies were, were, were facing. And there's one category at risk water bodies where forestry is a significant pressure. And I just want you to, to look at that map very, very quickly and just to keep it in your, in your mind's eye, if you, if you will. 
just a, a little bit of background in terms of where we've come from historically. Ireland, um, you know, as we emerged from the Ice Age, very quickly developed a very strong woodland cover, up to maybe 80-85% of the island was covered with forests of one type or another. Um, and then as, as the climate changed and as people began clearing forests, you can see the dramatic decline. Um, to where we were at point, or we were at just one percent at the beginning of the 20th century, and since then we were now at 11 percent, which over 120 years is a, a fairly phenomenal land use change. And the graph on the right hand side gives you a bit more um, detail about how we have made that change take place. You can see the planting that's happened each year since uh, 1922. Uh, well, not each year, but every a number of years since 1922. And the green bars represent planting carried out by the state, and the red bars are where private planting has taken place. So you can see very much the shift since the, since the late um, 1980s, where farmers and other private landowners came in uh, with, the, with the, you know, the help of supports available and advice from agencies such as Chagisk and um, registered foresters and what have you, and began taking over, if you like, the, the planting program and beginning to dominate it. And you can see that it, primarily all planting is now carried out in the private sector. Um, although this new scheme that came out last week might just add a little bit more green into that mix. Um, but that's where we've come basically historically. Um, I just want to say just two graphs here, just don't want to throw too many graphs at you, but in terms of the overall characterization that took place behind the water framework direct of the second cycle, overall forestry was seen as being the fourth most significant risk um, relating to at-risk water bodies, and these are water bodies which are at risk of falling back um, in their status. So forestry was seen as being the fourth most significant pressure, but critically in terms of these high ecological status objective water bodies um, you know where where um, these are particularly important from an ecological point of view and, and where um, you know particular focus is, is shining and um, forestry is um, deemed to be the most significant and how that is is because there's a very strong overlap between legacy forestry sites and these types of landscapes and if I just throw this map up again, where you have a map on the left-hand side showing where these at-risk water bodies are. Um, and then on the right-hand side, you get a flavor of where forests in Ireland are generally distributed. And you can see the upland areas where there's concentration of these at-risk water bodies um, often correlates strongly with um, older state planting um, in terms of kind of the older portion of our forest estate. Um, so there is a real strong legacy issue there. So it's undoubted that there can be issues. If you have a poorly sited, designed and managed forest, it can lead to negative impacts. Um, however, if we appropriately site, design and manage forests, it can also deliver very important water-related ecosystem services and also play an important role in meeting the Water Framework Directive objectives. So really it's about how, and this is the, the, the Forest Service's position in terms of the Water Framework Directive uh, and the focus of our work, it's how do we minimize, A, how do we minimize legacy issues and, and problems that are, are, are being created by having um, forest plantations, for example, on peat in very sensitive upland areas within these high status water body catchments, um, how do we manage those? How do we extract timber? How do we fell the trees? How do we reforest or maybe decide not to in some particular cases? 
in order to minimize that, that, that potential for, for impact. But also on the other side of it, how do you look at ways in which we can develop woodland and forests in a way that begin to practically deliver benefits in terms of water quality? So it's really about eliminating A and, and promoting B. And that's really what, what we're really focused on doing now in terms of water. And I mentioned we had a number of different schemes to promote different types of forestry. And one package we have, which we've worked on for the last two decades very closely with um, a number of stakeholders, is the Native Woodland Scheme Package. And this has really come together because of input from the likes of Woodlands of Ireland, who are a very, very um, important um, body in this whole area, um, National Parks and Wildlife, Inland Fisheries Ireland, the Heritage Council, and a wide range of other Native Woodland stakeholders. We all came together to, to develop a scheme that would provide funding into the, the area of native woodland. Obviously, for all the different biodiversity benefits and cultural reasons um, as to why native woodlands are so important and um, being such a threatened part of our, of our national heritage, but also in ways in which we can maximize the ecosystem benefits that we can get from native woodlands, for example, those relating to water. So, the Native Woodland Scheme, it has two packages within it, or two schemes within it. One is the Native Woodland Conservation. And here are two photographs showing one application of that, where you're, trans, you're, you're moving from a, a woodland that um, has laurel, has um, non-native species such as beech, for example, um, and you're moving that over, you're restoring that uh, into um, native woodland by removing those threats and replanting and fencing from deer and letting the woodland ecosystem begin to recover. But also um, we can provide funding for the conversion of forest stands to native woodland. And this is very important in terms of dealing with those legacy sites where we do have forests in, in areas which we would not plant nowadays. So how do you move those into something more appropriate? Um, so people have used this scheme in this way, whereby the, the conifer stand is felled and it's reforested with native woodland. Um, and that provides a very important buffer um, behind which you know, the, the reforestation with conifers can take place. But you have a very, very robust native woodland buffer there along the, the, the adjoining the ecosystem, uh, the aquatic, um, the aquatic zone, so very important protective function. But we also have, as part of the Native Woodland Scheme package, this Native Woodland Establishment Scheme. And this is all about developing new Native Woodland on open greenfield sites. Um, and this has the highest grant premium rate available under the afforestation scheme. Um, you can see the rate there is 6,222 euro per hectare to actually develop the, the, the actual woodland to get the trees in the ground and fenced off and, and maintained to year four, plus also an annual premium for 15 years of 680 um, euro per hectare. So it's quite an attractive from that perspective. And again, it's focused on native woodland expansion um, and also ways in which we can deliver um, ecosystem services to that landscape, including those relating to water. So a couple of applications here. I just want to bring you through, uh, if you like, a typical native woodland establishment cycle where you have a process where the plan is developed and you have input from the professional forester working, working with the landowner, often an ecologist is involved as well. The scheme um, requires people to identify what the most appropriate native woodland type is for that particular area, what would occur there naturally over time, and then we try to replicate that. Very important conditions about, you know, for example, where the seed comes from. Is it um, native from within Ireland to conserve genetic biodiversity? Um, we have a requirement for minimum site input in terms of minimal cultivation and minimal fertilizer input. 
it's all about trying to match trees to the site and, and in that way those trees have the best chance of, of, of leaping out from the ground. And you can see the example there on the bottom left hand corner of um, a pioneer birch woodland planted under the native woodland scheme and that's at year five or six I think. Um, so those trees are over two meters tall and those are requirements for deer fencing that area so that's another issue that we have to be very aware of. But very quickly, um, over a short period of time, um, these native woodlands begin to um, impress themselves on the landscape. And you can see there, just on the top right-hand side, a picture of a native woodland planted down in Dunmanway in, um, in, in Cork. And that was at year seven or eight, I think it was. Um, that was an ash oak woodland. And you can see with the people walking through it, how quickly the canopy emerges. And very quickly, natural processes take over. For example, you know, seed fall drops into the woodland, um, you know, natural processes occur, animals and plants begin to find um, a home there. And although it might be planted quite regularly and artificially within maybe a dozen years, these natural processes really begin to have an impact on, on, the, on the, um, the ecology of these new woodlands. And over time, they gradually become more and more diverse uh, and more settled. And very quickly, though, the benefits in terms of biodiversity, etc., come to the fore. But the key one we want to focus on here is that in relation to water. So here's just an example of, um, this is actually the very first site planted under the Native Woodland Scheme in Balivari up in um, County Mayo. And um, that field there, um, a rough grazing field, was planted with um, uh, a mixture of birch and other species. And over time, you can see that that photograph in the bottom left-hand side, it's um, what the site looks like, um, I think, 18 years later. And what you have there, basically, is you have an unplanted water setback, which allows for the natural repairing vegetation to come to the fore, um, uh, to act as an um, additional kind of buffer, but also as a kind of a wildlife corridor. And then behind that, you have the canopy of native woodland beginning to emerge very strongly. And you can see that being used as part of on-farm mitigation, for example, in terms of the protection of water, but also on-farm um, measure in terms of biodiversity and landscape and, and all of these other benefits and services that, that, that are very much to the fore. So even very small buffers um, placed in individual fields, um, you know, we don't need to go any more than um, 20 meters wide, for example. Um, even those very, very small buffers can, can provide massive benefits in terms of the protection of, of water. And the benefits are very large and very varied. For example, having a native land buffer like this, it has been shown to reduce sediment mobilization and run off into watercourses. Um, so you have a buffer basically of natural vegetation, which can pull out sediment and nutrients that might come through it from overland flow and um, stabilizes banks and um, so there is a big issue i know in many areas of of banks being washed out and eroded particularly with these kind of storm events that we are now seeing more and more of so by having this kind of approach where you begin to stabilize the actual bank with repairing vegetation strengthened by by repairing species such as willow for example that aids that process in terms of restoring the the stability of our banks um, input of food, for example, um, the, the leaf drop of native species into the water itself, that provides a food source and a source of energy for the aquatic ecosystem. So, um, you know, that's a very, very important part of the aquatic ecosystem. Provides shading and cooling of water. Um, now, we're not talking about having trees all the way along the watercourse, which would lead to tunneling. Um, but 
there are situations where small groups of trees can be planted along the, the, the riverbed or along the stream um, bank, and that can provide very important shade and a very important cooling effect. And there is an issue nowadays, particularly during summer months, um, where with low flows in the water and high temperatures, where you have um, negative impacts in terms of aquatic ecosystems and aquatic life, uh, fish, for example. So cooling, this cooling effect can be very, very important. These, this approach can also help regulate flood water in terms of putting in place natural flood retention measures and um, to slow down the flow of water over the landscape and also to provide these sinks where the water is stored and released gradually over time. And as I mentioned before, the whole restoration of the riparian ecosystem. And you can see the photograph there, for example, where um, natural processes begin to take off um, and suddenly you have a habitat forming for the likes of kingfisher and wood um, and otter and, and other kind of uh, linchpin species. So very, very important from the point of view of repairing ecosystem restoration. And that in itself develops these biodiversity corridors along our watercourses. So we've dived into this area in, in a big way within the, the department and we produced this document, Woodland for Water, which really just tries to present this approach into the water community. And we did this for the second cycle of the Water Framework Directive. So it's available online and, and we have explored each of these benefits and dived into the literature to, to pull out the, uh, whatever research is there to, to underline the case. And um, so that, that might be a document that people might want to, to dive into to get more information about this area. But of course, other co-benefits arise in this approach. Um, there's a number of different types of wood products that can be gained by the landowner. Um, everything from this coppice restoration project in Ballybarry again in Mayo. Um, kind of um, smaller market, but nevertheless very valuable produce like charcoal and um, bespoke furniture, uh, firewood. Um, and also on the, on the right hand side, the ability to grow very valuable um, saw logs, for example, over time. So that, that also forms part of the native woodland scheme where it is compatible with native woodland ecosystems and, and the biodiversity. And by managing these forests using continuous cover forestry principles, um, realizing this type of wood is possible from these native woodlands and it is encouraged where appropriate. I mentioned the whole issue of on-farm biodiversity, but also the biodiversity begins to develop at a landscape level by planting these native woodlands along watercourses. Um, there's a range of, of, of plants and animals there. And not to forget on the bottom right-hand side, um, just, just a short, a small diagram of what happens under the ground, because most of the biodiversity in our native woodlands is under our feet in terms of everything happening there. So um, just to, to, flag, um, to flag that with people watching. Um, other very important ecosystem services, carbon capture, of course, people, you know, the idea that these native woodlands, you know, landowners may be um, open to providing access uh, to local communities, for example, um, the whole idea of connecting with Ireland's deep past, um, there's, there's a picture here of um, a large canoe um, in the National Museum in Dublin, which just gives an indication of what type of trees, the very stature of the trees that, that existed on this island in times past. So by creating native woodlands, it just gives us that little window into the deep past, as well as all these other benefits, um, including water benefits. So there's a whole strong community now emerging in Ireland um, uh, regarding native woodlands. We have 
with the scheme developed a number of training courses uh, with Woodlands of Ireland where we've brought ecologists and foresters together uh, to look at ways in which we can develop native woodlands, new native woodlands and restore existing native woodlands. Um, we also see the native woodland scheme being used on a trial basis to develop new native woodlands down in Kerry with the Kerry Life Project, which is focusing on, on land management for the conservation of freshwater pearl mussels. So that's a, a very exciting application of the scheme in that regard. But just one other scheme as well I'd like to touch on very briefly, the agroforestry scheme. And this again is a scheme that we feel has potential in terms of the protection of water. And agroforestry is a system very, very common over, mainly over in Europe. Um, and what it does, it allows the landowner to develop a crop of timber, if you like, um, uh, with, by planting wildly spaced, wildly spaced trees. Um, and in between the trees, um, they're able to continue farm activity. Um, and in this case here in Ireland, we're talking about civil pastoral systems whereby um, within beneath the trees planted, grazing and fodder growth is also encouraged. So the scheme is just starting off and it's been on the road for a couple of years um, and there is an awful lot of interest in it. And this is another way in which woodland can be developed in a way that would enhance water quality because what happens in these areas that are planted is a reduction in the level of intensity for example you have a much denser sward developing um, and overall you have um, you know better infiltration of water for example increased biodiversity so it's another way in which forestry can be used to protect water quality a few other measures that are also coming to the fore in terms of um, schemes we offer that can be used to protect water. Um, we have a continuous cover forestry scheme which is about managing woodlands towards continuous cover forestry. So the likes of um, a conifer stand, an even aged conifer stand for example, being managed over time into a continu continuous cover forest um, uh, with species diversity, age diversification, etc. And what that does, it avoids us having to clear fell those areas which can expose soil to rainwater and create issues for water quality. I mentioned before this new scheme, the Woodland Creation on Public Land Scheme, and this is focused on public bodies looking at their land bank and seeing opportunities for developing new native woodland using the native woodland scheme requirements. So, you know, we're very much for ecosystem delivery. So carbon capture, water protection, biodiversity, uh, these are all parts of what public bodies are trying to achieve and they have commitments in these areas. And um, so this scheme is, is designed to, to, to realize that land bank, if you like, and realize that opportunity for developing new native woodland. I also want to mention the Woodland Environmental Fund, which is in operation for, the, for over a year now. And this is where we are bringing businesses into the process of native woodland creation by getting them to add additional funds to the grant we offer to tip landowners into a decision to go with native woodland. So the idea is that um, a business might become associated with a local native woodland developed by a local farmer and in that way uh, the business is able to, to point towards that in terms of its commitment to um, carbon capture, biodiversity, the protection of water. Uh, etc. So that's another very important um, opportunity in this area. And of course also as part of all afforestation and reforestation projects there's a range of requirements and standards that must be adhered to uh, regarding the protection of water. Um, 
probably first and foremost among those is this water setback whereby you must leave an area of unplanted, uncultivated land along the aquatic zone and along re relevant water courses, for example, drains um, and, and water related hotspots, you know, wetter areas within the site. Um, so that we have this protective buffer of natural ground vegetation uh, to try to capture any sediment and any nutrients that might move off uh, the, the site itself. So that forms part of all of our um, activities in terms of afforestation, in terms of uh, clear fell, um, tree felling, reforestation, etc. And for details, have a look at the environmental requirements for afforestation and the standards for felling and reforestation. They're on the, the department website, which I'll, I'll leave on my last slide. So they're also very important. That's going to real bread and butter protective measures that, that are built into all our, of our licenses. So finally, just to get across again the idea, a couple of, of aerial shots, and these are taken from the web, um, is just to, to demonstrate how um, native woodlands can be used as part of on-farm mitigation to protect water quality. So um, the idea of developing these permanent semi-natural habitats close to um, aquatic zones, close to streams and rivers, um, and also you know, along important drains, for example, um, and how effective they can be in terms of um, intercepting sediment and nutrients in restoring the ecological functionality, if you like, of the riparian zone and the aquatic zone, um, and how they also deliver lots of other co-benefits in terms of biodiversity, the landscape, and the opportunity for timber, for example, and wood products for the, the landowner, him or herself, um, and how they can impact at a, a farm level, but also very much at a landscape level. And if you pull back away from the map, if you like, of a, of a locality and, and visualize the idea of having pockets of native woodland strung out along a watercourse going through a landscape, and those woodlands located strategically where the, the benefits that they deliver to water are maximized, um, you know, that would really maximize the opportunity for how forests can deliver benefits um, uh, in relation to protection enhancement and enhancement of water quality. So if you like the real kind of a nub of the issue, the nub of the problem is how do we achieve the idea of a landscape approach? How do we achieve this idea of identifying within an area where ideally pockets of native woodland should go in order to protect the watercourse and then how to bring landowners in together and, and to realize that, 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 that vision in, in a coordinated way. So we have lots of the tools to make this happen, but we still have to get over that little hurdle, if you like, to bring it all together. But you know, having done that, we're, we're well on the way to this kind of um, image. And this is from the, the second cycle of the Water Framework Directive, just given an idea of the different land uses that take place within any one water catchment. Um, and you can see there how small woodlands, you know, hedgerows, pockets of trees, for example, are very important within the landscape itself um, in terms of slowing down water, in terms of natural water retention measures. Um, you know, the idea of there is definitely a place for um, commercial conifer plantations and commercial conifer forests um, in terms of an economic backbone of Irish forestry. And how do we manage those in a way that, that protects and enhances water quality? And also how do we engineer in more native woodland, more continuous cover forestry, and more of these semi-natural permanent areas along our aquatic zones to really maximize the, the, the potential 
that trees, woodlands and forests have in terms of protecting and enhancing water quality. So it's all very, very exciting um, work at the moment that's going on under the Water Framework Directive, um, and particularly the third cycle. And we're very much working closely with them and also with partners such as Woodlands of Ireland in terms of further refining and enhancing the native woodland scheme. And I'm also very hopeful with this new scheme aiming at targeting public lands that we'll also see significant areas of native woodland being developed in that sector, if you like, and um, also focus on things like carbon biodiversity and um, uh, water quality. So that, that's very exciting as well. So Mark, I'm running out of steam here. We're running out of breath. So I, I just want to leave people with my contact details and also contact details of Ken, my colleague, who also works very closely with me on, on, on the Water Framework Directive issues. And um, I also want to show up there our colleagues in Chagas, the forestry advisors, um, who are also always available to, to talk with landowners about opportunities for forestry. Um, so they'd be well aware of, of this whole area. Um, and also Joe Garren of Woodlands of Ireland. Um, and I mentioned before, we've always worked very closely with Woodlands of Ireland on developing the native woodland scheme and developing this application of it. So Joe is, is, is now um, um, there heading this, this effort with Woodlands of Ireland. So I just want to throw up his contact details as well. So thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. That was an excellent, excellent presentation. Really enjoy those slides where you can see the before and after effect, you know, the, particularly over a, a long period, the, the effect of, of that, uh, that margin and then your, your forestry setback. Um, it's, 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 it's very visual. Um, lots of excellent questions coming through. But before we get to the questions, I suppose it's a general point that has been made to me on several occasions. Um, I, I, I own a little bit of forestry myself, but I, I often have a chat with the, the forestry uh, industry around the environmental side of forestry. And, and there, there is a view out there that uh, the, the environmental restrictions are over-restrictive and, mm. and slowing down the, the rate of growth. Um, so the graph that you showed there showing the, the inventory uh, since 1922, I mean, there's been a a very sharp increase over the that period but i think are we see, seeing a flattening in that curve yeah mark we are i mean in one way i'm delighted to be here because it takes me away from what currently is dominating my work and and the work of a number of my colleagues it's dealing with this um uh, backlog that is built up um within the licensing system um, as we rapidly change our appropriate assessment procedure to meet the legal requirements. So, um, and you might be aware that we're dramatically upskilling with ecological resources within the inspectorate. Um, we now have um, six or seven full-time ecologists and a similar number that we are working with um, on a consultancy basis. Um, and we have now um, a very detailed plan to, to start moving through this backlog that has built up. So yeah, there are very stringent environmental requirements and procedures that we do have to go through, um, particularly in relation to appropriate assessment, which is you know, the basis for, for the, the backlog, um, because there is a sharp focus on forestry at the moment. And there have been changes in the interpretation or clarifications in the interpretation of the Habitat Directive at an EU level and also in the national courts. So we're emerging from a, that, that very dense two-year period of, of turmoil. And um, we're now beginning to, to move through files, albeit slowly at first, but hopefully over time that will speed up. 
so yes there is there is that kind of dichotomy insofar as we are trying to promote a land use that if done properly and if well cited has all of these benefits the environmental benefits but at the same time we're, we're held back by these environmental requirements but the two aren't necessarily um exclusive we just need to get the environmental requirements sorted during the application process and then that'll let us really you know go for it in terms of uh, delivering bars which tick all the boxes um, so yeah we are in this this period of change at the moment John. That, that target you mentioned of 18 percent uh, target cover uh, by 2046 is there a breakdown of that or is that uh, are there any interim goals or, or dates for that that uh, that target um well it's, it's kind of hard to to set too precise interim goals i mean generally it's kind of 30 percent broadly planting as part of the afforestation program and you know each forestry program that comes along we're currently at the end of the current forestry program so there'll be a new forestry program being developed now and that'll have its own targets as well so it's kind of constant adjustment because along the way we do hit these massive um, um, issues. For example, we've gone through the whole process with the ash dieback, which had a big impact in terms of our broadleaf planting and, and we lost ash from the forestation program, which is a, a wonderful native broadleaf that, that farmers and other landowners had a real um, connection with. So that, you know, we've had issues with massive catastrophic wind blow, for example, and um, we're now going through a regulatory challenge, which hopefully we're beginning to emerge from, albeit very slowly. So, you know, we will meet other challenges on the way, but I think we'll also see opportunities emerging. And I mentioned the, the new scheme we have in terms of uh, reaching out to the public sector and reaching out to businesses, for example, and that has realized a lot of different opportunities in terms of native woodland, and I think it will continue to do so. So it's hard to kind of predict too far how we're going to achieve that that end target but it's like it's on a program to program basis okay kevin we're getting a lot of interesting questions coming through here so uh, we better get to them um so uh, the first question here is if the native woodland scheme is so attractive why has uptake been disappointing and what policy measures are needed to change this well the target under the forestry program was 450 hectares per year and before the current slowdown hit us, we were beginning to, I think we were exceeding that actually. Um, I think we reached 500 hectares per year. It did take time to, to build up within the current forestry program, um, but we were beginning to hit that target uh, for one or two years. And then unfortunately, we're into this process, into this period here where we have this log jam. Um, but I think that in terms of the percentage of afforestation that is being approved now, native woodland is probably making up quite a significant portion of that. Um, and we do see uh, an ongoing increase in interest in the scheme um, among the mainstream forestry sector, if you like. Like for a long period, native woodland creation you know there are always operators who are very keen on doing it and landowners who are very very keen on realizing new native woodland but it's very much over the last couple of years moved into the mainstream and what we are really pushing and we're beginning to see it now is that native woodland plots form part of a general afforestation so you might have um, an afforestation project involving gpc3 which is primar primarily citric spruce for example with 15 percent broadleaves and 15 percent open space plus plots of native woodland um, adjoining watercourses within the more sensitive areas, for example, of the project area. So that type of mix and match 
is really where we love to go with, with the native woodland. And we're seeing it become like that as it becomes more and more mainstream within the, the forestry sector. What about, uh, Kevin, for uh, uh, grassland farmers, tillage farmers? Uh, how, how attractive are these schemes uh, and how do they interact with existing schemes such as the, the basics payment schemes and so on? Uh, you know, how are, are they, um, you know, do they, uh, are they compatible and uh, will farmers sacrifice much payment if they opt yeah. for uh, the, the, those schemes? Well, I think the main, the main kind of challenge is um, the footprint of the land itself in terms of the option the farmer has to continue with tillage or dairy, for example, versus, you know, what goes in under trees physically. So that, that is in terms of the loss of, of the productivity. Um, and that's why we're in those areas, we're trying to stress that even very small areas planted with native woodland um, can have major benefits in terms of uh, protecting water in terms of on-site, on-farm biodiversity, etc. So, you know, very small strips of native woodland in key areas on the farm may not take up that much of footprint, but can deliver, you know, a wide range of these benefits and really kind of um, engineer into the farm landscape a permanent mitigation in terms of water quality, in terms of biodiversity. So we fund um, native woodlands down to 20 metres in width, plus 10 meter wide uh, aquatic setback. So, um, so we're looking at a 30 meter strip. Now that can, that can get narrower as well in pinch points. So it's not like a, a straight line, if you like. So uh, along the water course, but also there might be areas elsewhere on the farm which can act as a source of, of issues. Uh, for example, it could be a, a wet area or around um, farm buildings, for example, where pockets of native woodland can, can be effective as water retention measures. So, um, so we can get down to that type of width. Now, obviously, there is um, um, an opportunity there to, to blend seamlessly into what the uh, other environmental agri-schemes offer, for example, in terms of smaller pockets of, of tree planting and individual tree planting. But in terms of native woodland, that's what we can go down to. So in terms of the land take within a, a tillage farm, you know, carefully identified areas um, can make all the difference if they are brought into native woodland. Okay, very good. Um, we have a, a question in relation to that conversion of, um, I think, is a, of, of existing plants, yes. Uh, or plantations, what conditions need to be met to be eligible to convert a conifer plantation to native woodland uh, under the uh, Native Woodland Scheme Conservation okay. Scheme? Well, yeah, there, there are, I mean, there's a scheme document on the website and that lists around seven or eight different criteria. And if you hit one of those, you know, games on, if you like, you know, potentially you're, you're eligible for funding. So things like, you know, um, are you adjacent to, um, and an known ancient native woodland, for example, or are you within a, a water sensitive area? Um, you know, is there a particular focus on um, 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 designated areas, for example? So there are a list of criteria and if you meet one of those, well then you're open to that. And what I say about that application of the scheme, um, we have seen it take place down, for example, in Kerry Life, um, uh, we have seen it in other areas of the country where a stand of conifers has been clear felled or is about to be clear felled um, and it's deemed because of the sensitivity of the site in terms of designations or in terms of water it will be more appropriate to go back in there in native woodland. So the most recent 
number of examples have come about under Kerry Life down in the Cara and Blackwater um, in, in, as part of the, the, the work down there to conserve uh, to, uh, freshwater pearl mussel in terms of farming and forestry. So we've seen a couple of exciting um, applications of that scheme down there. Um, so yeah, those are the types of, 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 of conditions that, that are required. Uh, interesting question here about the role of forestry and, and woodlands in, in controlling uh, flooding. Um, you know, which woodlands, are, is there evidence here to show the extent of which woodlands reduce surface runoff and thereby downstream flooding? Yeah, there, there, I know of one or two research projects which are underway, which haven't been published yet, uh, which kind of begin to dip into this from the Irish perspective. Um, there is also under the um, the 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 the, um, the, um, flood, the water framework directive and the the flood framework directive work going on within Ireland um, on developing natural water retention measures um, involving the EPA and other water water based um, bodies and ourselves and and other like the Department of Agriculture generally. So as part of that, the idea of small woodlands, hedgerows, trees that forms part of the suite of measures that that group is looking at. But there is good examples um, from the UK and from elsewhere in Europe, um, which looks at small catchments um, and relates the tree covering those catchments, particularly hedgerows and small woodlands, with the reduction in flood water and the, the holding back of the flood water. But one thing I would say in this, and we, we've made this very clear, like trees and woodlands and forests aren't the only solution. It has to be as part of a wider catchment approach in terms of other measures that are happening in there if we, if we want to do this. Um, but certainly I remember around 12, 13 years ago going over to Scotland with um, Woodlands of Ireland and Inland Fisheries Ireland to look at examples over there where they have used woodlands to reduce flooding and in that way to avoid spending uh, large capital on hardcore engineering solutions in downstream villages. So they saw the economic benefit um, of moving funds from the engineering solution to the upstream natural solutions. And mm -hmm. um, so they're putting their money where their mouth was, if you like. So that was very, very reassuring and very enlightening to see. Yeah, I saw a similar, similar example over in New York City where they decided to opt for you know, rather than uh, expensive water treatment plants and so on, it, it was agri-environmental schemes that they chose to, to put their money into. Um, and it has been very successful. Um, the question here in relation to invasive species such as rhododendron, are measures uh, taken to protect new native forestry from these and how is it done? Yeah, I mean, rhodo is a real scourge in terms of native woodland and you'll be very very familiar with, with kind of some of our the jewels in our national crown and the difficulties rhododendron presents within those in terms of kind of crowding out the uh, the, the the natural ground flora and fauna so it is a real threat and um, where we see it as being the biggest issue in terms of of our interaction with landowners with the native woodland scheme is in woodland restoration, where you have an existing woodland that might have beech, might have rhododendron, laurel, for example, and how to control rhododendron within that context, because, you know, cutting it and spraying it, and uh, if necessary, or we've seen chipping, we've seen burying, we've seen uh, stem injection, um, and all of which, um, depending on the level of infestation, you know, it's 
backbreaking work. It's really expensive. It's very hard. And, you know, it's only as good as the, the follow-up monitoring, if you like, because it can very quickly reappear again. So it has, we have funded projects where rhododendron removal was part of the mix of measures needed to restore woodlands. Um, and there are examples around the country of this, but we see the largest challenge is having invested in that, then the danger of the species reinvading the woodland through adjoining seed sources. And so the need for ongoing monitoring and ongoing uh, maintenance until you have the natural ground flora up and away and the natural canopy in place which themselves will slow down any any infestation, if you like, in the future. Okay, Kevin, the, the questions are coming thick uh, and fast here, so we, we better try and <laughs> get through them as, uh, as quick as we can. Um, the, um, the question around air quality here, I know today's presentation is focused on water quality largely, but are, are you doing much work in relation to woodlands as a mitigating buffer around farms from air quality? Uh, especially ammonia emissions perspective. I know this is um, in, in no, Europe. No, I mean, the, the, the answer to that is no. That really hasn't come up on our radar, um, except to say that I used to work in the urban forestry sector, and we still have a, a hand in that with the neighbourhood scheme, which is developing woodlands um, close to where people live, including urban woodlands. And so within that context, you know, we're very aware of the benefits that trees and woodlands have in terms of urban air quality and trapping particulate pollutants, etc. So by extension of that, I would imagine that, that, that these types of woodlands would also have a benefit um, in terms of the application you're, you're, you're talking about. But I have to admit, it hasn't really popped up on our radar as um, an ecosystem service that we've thought about. Um, but now you've raised it, maybe we should throw it into the mix and, and, and do a little bit of background research into it. You talk about the, um you know the importance of a landscape approach to to uh, forestry planning and and uh, particularly riparian planting and so on i mean are there examples of that in in ireland uh, where you know you have the the various stakeholders have come together uh, the funding bodies the local authorities and so on has mm. that happened um or you know are there are there plans for that to happen yeah, I mean, there are, there are small examples where it's happened locally, for example. Um, I'm thinking with the likes of Kerry Life, of course, of the Cara and Blackwater catchments. Um, uh, Duhallow as well is another life project where there was coordination between different land use sectors. Um, you know, we are working closely with the EPA and the, 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 um, the catchment unit there to try to figure out ways in which we can identify key areas, localities where native woodland would most would, would be very beneficial. Um, and then, you know, ideas about how we then reach into that community and promote the idea of, of, of having more native woodland in that area and where to put it. Um, we've also um, met very much with the, the, lo the local people in terms of um, their engagement with local communities um, and the to raise the awareness there among those communities of the likes of the neighborhood scheme as part of, of, of local developments along watercourses. Um, you know, so we're, we're kind of pushing those, those types of opportunities. There are examples where you have adjoining landowners, for example, Quilcher National Parks and Wildlife, and there's one particular location in out the west, which I'm thinking of, where you had a mixture of National Parks Wildlife woodland, Quilcher woodland forest, 
um, conifer plantation and also a private landowner strung out side by side and all managing their their areas in a consistent way to consolidate into a larger native woodland. Um, so those are kind of examples of, of, of best practice, if you like, that are, that are out there. Um, but we don't have enough of them yet, I'm afraid, but striving for them. We have a, a long question here, but if I could summarize it, uh, there's a, a person here that feels that maybe farmers, uh, you know, asking farmers to take a 30 meter strip alongside a, a water course, it may be too much of an ask. And is there a potential there to uh, reduce the that that width overall width uh, that's needed? Yes, and that's a really good question. And it was a real challenge that we had in Kerry Life, for example, because you had farms which were, you know, they had, you know, the, the best part of the farm, if you like, was down towards the watercourse. And yet we were asking for this scallop of land to go into native woodland. But how it transpired was that, you know, it doesn't need to be all the way along the watercourse and it doesn't need to be in a kind of a solid line. It can be in small blocks as well. So, um, but there are opportunities for that 30 meters to come down um, at pinch points, for example. So it doesn't need to be a solid 30 meter band. Um, so it can kind of breathe in and out, if you like, and it can melt down into nothing and then pick up again at the far end of the field and expand out again. So it's kind of looking at each field and seeing, looking at the topography, looking at the where water flows um, and, you know, focusing the woodland, if you like, where the water passes through, because that's where the benefits in terms of the, the the vegetation within the forest on the on the forest floor uh, absorbing sediments and nutrients as it passes through as water passes through so you know it's about looking at how water flows over the field and towards the watercourse and locating the plot of woodland strategically to to intercept that flow if you like okay um question in relation to uh, the, the the level of impact of forestry clear felling harvesting machinery and general harvesting operations on water quality and in particularly in high status sites and upland areas what type of training if any uh, would support forestry operators in terms of best practice is, is there yeah. are there guide i know that i know there are guidelines but are there uh, actual training or um, mandatory implementation of these guidelines well there is um by de facto because most of these forests have come about because of public planting in the past and are therefore managed by quilches. So the majority of these kind of legacy sites in upland areas, um, they are managed by, 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 by quilcher. And quilcher have um, a training program and a training program for a training requirement for its own contractors. Um, so there's a whole kind of um, process in there. If you want to be a contractor working within a culture forest, you must undergo contractor training and you'll see certified as having done so. And they also have kind of checks and balances and, and, and um, inspections and what have you. So, you know, that, that's by de facto, that's where the training input is going. But there is, in terms of, of um, you know, issues and challenges around clear felling these areas, there is a requirement to clear fell them because very often there is very limited room for um, opening up smaller coops or transfer them via continuous cover forestry because 
These are very often even-aged uniform stands on peat. So if you begin to go in there and do any sort of, of selective removal um, to try to move it very gradually, often what happens is wind blow. And that's a real threat because if you get that, you get a chaotic process um, whereby lots of sediment is generated, lots of impacts, trees falling over the watercourse, um, it doesn't become a controlled environment. Whereas if you can clear fell it, you can plan where machinery goes. There's requirements for exclusions, requirements for mat tracks, using brash, brash, brash mats. Um, harvesters and borders, which are the typical machinery used for these operations, are very low uh, soil pressure machines. Um, and if we can get that operation over and done with, well then the reforestation can incorporate the likes of the water setback, can incorporate areas earmarked for native woodlands or, or continuous cover forestry. So at reforestation, we can restructure the forest that goes back in there so that we don't meet these issues again. And that's where the real kind of um, opportunity for, for proactive change is. It's how we restructure these forests after Clearfell. But the operation of Clearfell, um, it is um, a very sensitive one in terms of the, the, the potential impacts it can generate. Um, so a lot of focus is on making sure that doesn't happen. Kevin, um, we have a question here. We're just coming close to the end of, of today's session, so we're trying to squeeze one or two. If we can maybe brief brief in our uh, in your responses, uh, is there any plan to award farmers who plant forestry any kind of carbon credits? Um, that is out of my area, but as far as I know, the answer is no. Okay, so. Um, and are there any discussions around this? Um, or yeah, and again, I, I don't want to stray too far, unfortunately, because there are other people. I have a, so much on my plate. You know, there there are other people who are working full time on that. Yes. Okay. Okay. But there 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 are there is work going on on this. In, in terms well, there are discussions going on about the whole issue of forests and carbon, and you know, you have Cofer Council in putting into it. It also comes up regularly um, with uh, forestry representatives and farming representatives um, in discussions. So, you know, it, it's something that, that is boiling away all the time. Yes. Okay, very good. Kevin, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, we have, there are more questions, uh, but what I'll do is I'm going to send those questions on to you. And um, if, if, if it's possible or if you, you think it's appropriate, maybe provide individual responses. We can provide you with contact details of the people who have submitted the questions. Right. Um, look, uh, thanks again. Really, really, and, and really positive feedback here from all of our, our viewers here about uh, to your excellent presentation today. So thank you for that. Um, I just want to also thank our production team uh, for uh, organizing this series, uh, Andy Boland, Pat Murphy, and Yvonne Maher, and of course, all of our partners. And so from myself uh, today, and uh, thank you for, for tuning in today. Uh, next week, we'll be uh, hearing about uh, energy uh, in, in agriculture. And um, Barry Caslin is going to be joining us to talk about that. Um, so we do join us next Friday at 9.30. So again, Kevin, thanks again for your, your time and thanks for stepping in at a relatively short notice. So we do appreciate that. Right, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. 
For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.